This is E2B, Energy to Business, a podcast by Opportune, where we bring you in-house expertise that serves all energy sectors. We examine emerging financial and technology trends and provide a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show as we explore more important topics, trends, and shifts in regulation in the larger energy and oil and gas industries. As we explore today's topic and introduce our two thought leaders to help us maneuver some regulatory shifts in the industry, I want to make sure you're getting all the opportune content you desire, which means catching up on previous episodes and tapping into some of our thought leadership in the space. So make sure that you're going to our website, opportune.com. Again, opportune.com. For more perspectives and more pieces of opportune content, including episodes of the podcast and other things like articles, videos, and more. You can also subscribe to Energy to Business on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous conversations plus notifications when we drop new ones. So team, on today's episode of the show, we're going to be analyzing the impact of some new injection well permitting standards for CCUS or uh, more granularly for carbon capture, utilization and storage in the energy industry. With so much complexity in the introduction of the class six injection well permitting process to the industry, We really wanted to take the time to give some actionable tips and strategies to our audience to clarify the basics around this permitting process to help you develop an actionable overview and strategy for completing the steps in the process. And then overall, just provide an update on recent permitting activities, some of their motivators and how to maneuver, uh, excuse me, how to maneuver new permits, state primacy efforts and more. So for insights, we're joined by two thought leaders from the Opportune team. First up, we've got Steve Hendrickson on the line, president of Ralph E. Davis, an Opportune company. Steve, great to have you on. How are you? Hi, Daniel. Doing great. Great to visit with you again. Yeah, always a pleasure getting to chat and source your thought leadership. I enjoy our conversation, so I'm glad we've got you back for some more. And we're also joined today by Mr. John Beard. He's vice president of Ralph E. Davis, uh, an opportune company. John, great to have you on as well. How are you? I'm doing good, Daniel. Good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate your time as well and looking forward to how the two of you help us synthesize these uh, technology and regulatory trends in the energy industry. So let's start by just better defining CCUS, right? Carbon capture, utilization, and storage is both a defining movement right now in the energy industry. It's a very high-level shift of adoption of methodologies and processes, but it's also more specifically just a group of technologies that are dedicated to reducing emissions and addressing already existing emissions in the atmosphere and in uh, our you know larger climate that are causing global accelerations of climate change. And so what I want to do is break down each of the components of CCUS and how they're intersecting with some processes in the oil and gas industry. So let's start with carbon capture. Can you all give us kind of an update on where the adoption of carbon capture tech is at right now in the energy industry? 
It's talked about as part of these strategies to mitigate emissions, but I've also read a lot of reports that say, you know, carbon capture tech isn't really there yet to be launched at scale. Is that true? Or, uh, you know, have we gotten to the point where carbon capture is uh, something viable to scale throughout energy and oil and gas? Give us the update. Yeah, you bet, Daniel. So I think the important thing for listeners to appreciate is that there are a lot of different sources of carbon dioxide emissions, and those sources emit uh, varying concentrations of CO2. And it's the level of concentration, the level of purity that plays a big role in the cost of the capture phase of CCUS. So take, for example, an ethanol plant uh, that is emitting almost a pure stream of CO2 compared to a coal-fired gas plant that is emitting a stream that might be 5 to 10% CO2. A uh, lot more costly to extract the CO2 from that vast exhaust stream from a coal-fired plant from, than from a small-volume ethanol plant that is emitting a pure stream. So with that kind of cost uh, continuum, if you will, quite a wide range and the, and the dollars that are required in order to get a, a disposable stream of CO2. And we lay that alongside the fact that, you know, there really isn't a vast market for CO2. Um, there is some, but, you know, it's not huge. Um, so therefore, there's no revenues that are generated by its collection. It's strictly the um, the tax credits that are being made available uh, through the federal tax code that provide the incentive for people to go to this uh, trouble. And therefore, if the incentives aren't great enough to offset the cost, then the, the practice won't advance. Uh, where we find ourselves right now with where the credits are set is that there is a lot of CO2 that is not economical to capture. We have plenty of technology that we can utilize to capture the CO2 in those lower purity streams. It just costs too much to do that. And uh, so right now, it's not really, I, I don't see it so much uh, as a tech problem as much as a um, just an incentives problem. Now, that's not to say that there won't be some technological breakthroughs that can help bring those costs down. Um, but I don't know that there's going to be one that we, you know, we wake up one day and all of a sudden these real high cost emissions are now um, extractable, if you will, at the current level of tax credits. John, any thoughts there? No, I totally agree with Steve. It's just the financial end of this just doesn't really work right now. It lots of different um, impurities, if you will, or concentrations, and you're going to have to have that tax credit backstop to to get it to where. Um, it makes economic sense to move ahead. That's fair. That's fair. But there's a lot of a lot of view on it now because of you know the green situation that we're in, if you will. And you mentioned earlier that you know we're talking about a new regulation. It's not new. It's been around since 2010, so 2010. It's, it's just now getting a lot of notice on how do we make this happen? How do we fight this global warming and how do we move ahead with this? And those regulations have been out there. They just haven't been utilized. And there has been some change that kind of helped. Uh, you know, the credit was slightly increased over the last few years. And there was also some clarification that the IRS made uh, last year that um, gave potential project developers, whether they're emitters or others, more certainty that their project was actually going to qualify for the credit. And because as we talk about the this permitting process is both lengthy 
and costly. Uh, and of course, the equipment that has to be installed, whether it's the capture equipment or the wells that are drilled to store under the CO2 underground, those are costly as well. People don't really want to go into this process with any uncertainty about what kind of credit they're going to get on the, the backside of it. So between those clarification improvements, changing administration that seems to be putting more emphasis on this sort of technology, uh, some sense that these uh, credits are likely to increase in order to bring more of the sources into uh, economic viability that's resulted in over the last, call it 12 to 18 months, just a, a real increase in interest and participants in the space. All right, let's talk about the U now in CCUS. So that'd be carbon utilization. Uh, where is carbon being utilized right now in oil and gas processes and to what effect, right? And then uh, how is the introduction of new technologies for carbon utilization impacting this intersection of new processes as well as an emphasis in reducing emissions as well and, and uh, you know, mitigating that carbon footprint? We don't have to probably spend a whole lot of time talking about utilization. I mean, there is there. And it's partly because it's somewhat limited. The idea of taking carbon dioxide, you think, well, where am I going to use that? Uh, you know, you could use it in carbonated beverages, but I mean. How much of that do we really need? Uh, there are some processes that utilize it. Many of them already have a source. We do utilize it in, in enhanced oil recovery operations, but many of those fields that are amenable to that type of process are either some distance from these sources where we are going to strive to capture CO2, or they already have CO2 available to them. So I think in terms of new products uh, that are going to use CO2, it's probably a pretty minor component of what's going to be removed from the air or, or not emitted into the air. So the storage aspect, at least from my view, is probably going to account for, you know, call it 80 to 90 percent, maybe even more of the reduced emissions. John, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. The utilization gets very little bandwidth see hardly anything about that at all. It's mainly storage. Well, on that note, then let's talk on the S part, the storage of CCUS or uh, otherwise known as sequestration uh, in the industry. Can you break down some of the components of new uh, carbon storage technologies and how those are being utilized in this larger push for reducing emissions and carbon footprints for the industry? We talked a little bit about enhanced oil recovery, and that's certainly a place where some of this could end up. And in, and in a way, you know, you inject it into the uh, an oil producing reservoir in order to increase the recovery of oil. Uh, when those fluids, that that is the increased oil and the CO2 that help drive it to the wells, comes out, the CO2 gets separated and recycled back in. And eventually you just uh, stop producing the reservoir and all the CO2 that you've been cycling around just stays underground. And, and so that is a means of ultimately storing some CO2. But really, when we think about the, the big storage target, it's putting it in either what's referred to as saline aquifers. So these would be underground formations that are filled with salt water or in depleted oil and gas fields, fields that we know have storage capacity because they produced hydrocarbons in the past. And we know something about them and uh, from a reservoir and geological standpoint. So we can take that knowledge and existing infrastructure and we can use those as places to put CO2. So 
those are kind of the two big areas for um, CO2 storage. It's hard to get too far ahead of myself. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. I, I feel like uh, the industry is leaning pretty heavily towards the saline aquifers, partly because uh, they're much more ubiquitous than uh, depleted oil and gas fields. Uh, another reason is, uh, and one thing we'll talk about as we go through uh, our discussion of the permitting process, is um, the need for important reservoir and geologic information in order to characterize the reservoirs that are designed to, that are going to be used to store this CO2. If we have a depleted oil field, that presents us with an opportunity uh, to have a lot of information because when we drilled those wells, we collected a lot of information. That's great in terms of modeling what, uh, what we're going to expect to happen when we put CO2 in the ground. But it also creates a number of risks. Most importantly, the, you know, that's a lot of penetrations or can be a lot of penetrations into the reservoir that we're going to store in. And each of those penetrations creates a potential leakage path. And I guess if I were to say to the listeners the one thing that the, the EPA is concerned about in Class 6 permitting, it is containment of the CO2. They want to be sure that it's not going anywhere. It's not going to leak out, get back into the atmosphere, or or get into underground drinking water. And so when we've got uh, depleted oil fields that have a lot of penetrations, there's going to be a lot of scrutiny around the construction of those wells and how um, we can be sure that they are not going to leak once they're exposed to CO2 under pressure. You'll spend a lot of money doing that. And that's the other thing, too, is that when the DOE sponsored these pre-feasibility studies that were done in 13 different areas across the United States, all of them were looked at saline aquifers, and there was no problem getting the CO2 in the ground. So there's the general idea, right or wrong, that these saline aquifers will be able to accept the CO2, and they'll be wherever your CO2 source is. You know, and another good reason uh, that leans towards that, we talked a little bit about some of the risks or maybe the risk and trade-offs on the depleted reservoir side. But on the saline aquifer side, um, one of the great things that offers is a method of trapping the CO2 underground. Now, this gets pretty technical, but, you know, a lot of folks think, okay, I'm just going to put it underground and it's going to sit in some pool down there or sit in a, like a gas cap in a reservoir. And, you know, that could be done, but one of the met primary methods of trapping the CO2 is by injecting it into a saline aquifer at a relatively low structural portion of the reservoir. That is, it'll rise up through the aquifer uh, over a great distance over time just due to buoyancy effects. But as it does that, it becomes less and less concentrated. And as the concentration, you know, we refer to it as saturation in petroleum engineering terms, as the saturation of the CO2 diminishes, it eventually gets to such a low point that it ceases to move and it's just stuck there. And if you can demonstrate that, what we uh, call, you know, call the residual saturation having been reached, then you can have a very high probability that you've got it contained. And of course, that's, that's what we're looking for. Right. You get a large quantity of the CO2 mixing in with the water too, and therefore it doesn't move. Yeah, it becomes soluble, right? And instead of remaining as a separate phase, it's it's dissolved in the uh, just like just like that CO two in a soda bottle before you open it up. It's all in there. Uh, it's not its own thing that can move around. That's the same kind of idea. All right, so I feel like we've got a good sense now of the basics for CCUS and the different components that are integrating this movement and set of technologies to the industry. 
but let's analyze the motivators as well. Why is CCUS getting so much attention right now? Uh, I have a feeling it has to do with, you know, also sort of larger trends for implementing more efficient technologies and technologies and processes that are green or at least have a, a focus on mitigating carbon footprint. But analyze that for us, break down some of those metrics and how you see this turning into new pressures as well as new opportunities for energy companies. Well, we've touched on it a little bit already because we talked, you know, there is no meaningful revenue stream to collecting this CO2. There's not a, there's not in a big enough market. You'd say, well, I'll just pick this stuff up and I'll sell it to somebody. I mean, there's some of that, but that's pretty small. So it's, it's the tax credit incentives. And so if you step back a little bit from that and you say, well, why would, why is the federal government creating this incentive? You know, the obvious answer is that there's a recognition that our modern way of life is heavily dependent on reliable, affordable energy that has a lot of other useful characteristics. And the fact of the matter is oil and gas check a lot of those boxes. And so there's really not a renewable, call it, you know, whether you call it green or low carbon or sustainable energy source that is anywhere near the readiness level that can replace oil and gas. So if we're going to both strive to reduce CO2 emissions and also maintain our quality of life and maintain our economy and all the wonderful things that we get from these hydrocarbons, then we need to create an incentive uh, in order to remove some of it from the atmosphere. Now, to get a little deeper into uh, the storage aspect of CCUS, which you both mentioned is one of the, I guess, most pressing components or the one that has a lot of energy, you know, pun intended there behind it. Part of carbon sequestration involves injecting CO2 into underground formations. So naturally, this raises some questions on carbon footprint, environmental impact, you know, as the industry is thinking about how can we reduce carbon? Uh, carbon is an active component of these new technologies. Now, I'm sure this is being thinked about, but I'm curious how you're seeing this activity be regulated today. Uh, and how are those strategies um, you know, translating into more thoughtful approaches for how to integrate these technologies and processes? Obviously, the, you know, the goal of um, CO2 sequestration is to reduce the footprint footprint of the consumption of oil and gas, right? And that, um, or any other CO2 sources, not, not every bit of CO2 that's going in the atmosphere is the result of combustion of a hydrocarbon. We, we mentioned ethanol. Um, there are other uh, chemical processes or like ground fertilizers, uh, cement manufacturing, etc. that not only consume oil and gas and therefore, you know, result in emissions from combustion, but the chemical processes themselves often result in a CO2 byproduct that has to be dealt with. And, and typically it's just emitted to the atmosphere. The whole uh, storage effort is one that's designed to reduce the carbon footprint of the economy, you know, writ large, if you will, at least as it respect to stationary sources. So the way that it's regulated, you know, as you can imagine it, you just can't run around injecting uh, fluids under the ground without uh, concern for what might go on with those fluids, especially 
not just for your neighbors, but to the formations that is the underground reservoirs or underground layers that exist above that zone that you're injecting in. And one of the most important ones of those is our underground drinking water sources. Uh, those typically extend from, you know, kind of near the surface down to maybe a few thousand feet, depending on where you are. And so much of what we do in the oil and gas business around drilling wells or doing water flooding, or whatever it might be, is involves protecting underground drinking water sources. So this one is no different. And so, um, back when the Clean Water Act was promulgated, you know, decades ago, um, there was a portion of that was related to underground injection control. And the act created different classes of wells that were for different purposes. And the regulation of those would be uh, handled in different ways. Um, originally, the Clean Water Act, Safe Drinking Water Act, were designed to make sure that the rules were followed on a federal level, but they gave the ability to the states to seek authority to implement those rules on their own behalf. And, and that's what we've seen with many of the federal environmental regulations. They have a state enforcement mechanism now that is designed or necessarily must adhere to the federal standards that are established. So today, uh, we think about underground injection of CO2 for sequestration purposes. The group of wells or the designation of well that describes wells for that purpose is called a class six well. Um, it's a fairly new class of well that, you know, John could correct me, but it was, was created a few years ago in order to deal with this particular problem and to establish a set of standards for it. That's true. And the class six wells... They differ from the other well classes in several key areas, three of which are the, the amount of technical data and detail required in the permitting process, the freedom that's given to the EPA director in expanding or modifying these minimum requirements. So when you get into the process, you don't really know how big it's going to get. And then it's, it's intended to be an iterative, interactive, and kind of collaborative nature. It's not like you do a permit and here's a 500-page document, I'm going to give it to the EPA and get my permit, they want to start at the beginning and they want to keep talking with you as you get data and they want to analyze it together. So it's quite a bit different than um, the other permit classes. Yeah. One of the ones that uh, we have a lot of experience with in the oil, gas, oil and gas business involves the wells that we use for either injecting water or CO2 or gas into formations uh, in order to drive hydrocarbons, drive oil primarily um, back to producing wells. Um, and those are referred to as class two wells. Most um, of the states that have active oil and gas activity have gotten the primacy, that is the enforcement of the Class II requirements to the state level. The requirements, they're not lax, but they are much less stringent than those for Class VI. And so the permitting uh, documentation looks quite a bit different. For instance, in Texas, to get a Class II well approved, they have a couple forms you fill out. There's an, uh, there's an area of review around your well. That you have to collect offsetting uh, well data, that is well bore data about, you know, again, trying to make sure that underground drinking water sources are protected. You know, where do these wells sit? How were they originally drilled and completed, et cetera? But it's, it's kind of a data collection exercise, and you demonstrate that, hey, everything's going to be good here. It's a fairly... A straightforward process and a fairly rapid process. If you complete your permit appropriately, 
usually it's and John, please, you know, let me know, but I would say it's, it's on the order of a few months. Yeah, it's a few months at most. It's, it's kind of interesting that in Texas, there is just, it's just two pages. One on the front is the data that you need to submit and the back is the instructions. So you have two eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper that are your instructions. Mm. You compare that to a class six well, there's over 1500 pages just of guidance <laughs> of what you need to do. Not the data, but this is how you should do it. And then they have a whole bunch of other supporting documents um, that outline, you know, how you get from, you know, from A to Z. So it's vastly different than what they've seen before. And we've, um, within our team, and John's really been leading this, we spent a lot of time looking at some of the um, feasibility studies that were done prior to, these would be studies that the EPA happened to, um, they were storage studies that the EPA funded uh, wholly or in part in order to keep the technology advancing uh, over, say, the last decade. And and, And so, this may be something that some listeners, they think back and they go, wait a minute, I've heard something about carbon storage a long time ago. And you go back about 10 or 12 years when there was a lot of discussion around a carbon tax, there started to be some interest in it. That, that talk died down and the kind of commercial interest in carbon storage also died down. But meanwhile, the EPA and some of its, um, I should say the Department of Energy and some of its subsidiary organizations, for lack of a better term, continue to do research on um, carbon storage, modeling, geologic risks, et cetera. And they've developed a lot of these uh, analysis that they feel are appropriate in order to get a permit. John's done a heck of a lot of jobs studying those and then laying that alongside some of the recent permits to get a really good handle on what these various components are. And so John has done an uh, extensive amount of review of these prior EPA, DOE studies. Uh, National Energy Technology Laboratory was involved as well, along with the permits that exist for the handful of wells that have either been applied for or um, uh, have been granted. And we've learned that, you know, there's a, there's a number of key components that have to go into that. And they're all very technical. They're all very lengthy. Uh, they include things like site characterization, which is, where will the CO2 go? How do you model that reservoir? How do you model the movement of the CO2 in the reservoir so you can be uh, confident that it's going to stay there? That's a very important and very complex part of it. But there's also a number of other follow-on plans that the uh, EPA or regulatory body is going to need to see. Things like that uh, you have a correction action plan if things go wrong, that you have plans for constructing your well and operating them through the injection cycle. How are you going to test and monitor to make sure there aren't problems? That is, that this stuff isn't getting out uh, in, in some fashion. How are you going to plug the wells when they're all done? And then after that, when everything's done and the site is closed, how do we close everything down and then continue to monitor to make sure that uh, it did actually stay where it was? put, you know, which is, of course, the intention. So there's a lot to the permits. They're quite lengthy. And, I, you know, I said early on, one of the big words is containment. I think the next big word is complexity. Now, let me ask a few more specific follow-ups here. Um, you know, part of implementing the U.S. Safe Drinking Water Act is that there is a certain level of I guess like a, a federalized approach to this in the in the American sense and the fact that each state 
has the ability to enforce their own program or to sort of transition over a, through a primacy process of enforcing the Drinking Water Act, but they do have to prove that they can do it as well, if not better, than the federal agency or the EPA would be able to. So can you break down how that's actually playing out in process and uh, how that sort of decentralized approach still maintains a level of standardization and quality and effectiveness across each implementation? Right. So you described it exactly right. There, There is the ability in a lot of these environmental rules for uh, state enforcement, state management of the permitting process, if you will. And of course, as you can imagine, nobody really wants to raise their hand to do something that they don't think is going to benefit their state. And so if you didn't really imagine that anybody was going to do class six injection in your state, you probably wouldn't volunteer or ask for the ability to do that yourself. It would just be uh, a headache if, at best, right? So so since it's a relatively nascent deployment of technology for this long-term storage, there really haven't been many states that have uh, raised their hand to try to take on um, the enforcement, that is the primacy of the uh, classics enforcement or the classics permitting process. Uh, originally, we had uh, Wyoming. They were the first ones that did it. It took them a number of years before they got their uh, authority granted. Uh, the second one was North Dakota. Uh, they recently received permission. Uh, I guess it's been in the last year or two. Let's call it a couple years. Um, and uh, they have recently uh, issued their first permit under the state primacy that they received. There are two other states that we're aware of that are seeking primacy. And no surprise, they're in areas that both have a lot of underground storage capacity and have a lot of CO2 emissions. And, and that's Texas and Louisiana. Uh, Louisiana has made their application earlier this year, and it's quite lengthy. It's a couple hundred pages long. As you mentioned, Daniel, you cannot expect that the state will come in and enforce a lower standard than the federal rule. So all of these complex permitting requirements, all this study, all the demonstration of containment, all the risk assessment that the EPA requires is pretty much going to be required by the states as well. If they're not able to demonstrate that that's what they're going to enforce, then it's very unlikely the EPA is going to grant them the authority to, to do that. Um, one other state that is uh, seeking primacy is Texas, as I mentioned. They passed legislation earlier this year granting the Railroad Commission and the TCEQ the authority, giving them the go-ahead to seek that primacy and that process is really just beginning. We we would expect it to take a, a number of months at, at the least. Now, just to draw some further distinctions here, we are talking about a class six process for permitting. Uh, but can you draw some distinctions here between a class two permitting process and the class six process? And I guess more specifically, give us that overview of uh, maybe the Texas class two process some of the steps in a class six process and then what the key objectives are in both and how that kind of defines the implementation approach. Yeah. Um, on the class two permits, as we mentioned earlier, um, it's a really just kind of a straightforward administrative process. Again, it's just a two page document. Um, if you were putting one together for a field you had, you'd probably take a couple of days gathering the data. You submit it to the railroad commission and to some of the local authority so that people are aware of what you're doing. Uh, if it's not protested, you get an administrative approval and it may take a month. It's it's no big deal at all. 
going back to the class six permits, there's probably eight different sections that you're looking at. There's a well site characterization, which is the surface. What's going on up there? What kind of topography do you have? What other things are going on? Then all the geology, all the wet freshwater zones. Describe the zone you're going to be putting uh, CO2 into. Very extensive um, amount of data collection going on. Uh, drilling a well to actually get some physical rock to test. And then you're going to do some reservoir simulation that fall into the second category. It's an area of review. You're going to determine and make an estimation of where's this CO2 plume going? How big is it going to be? How many miles is it going to stretch out? And then you're going to have to describe your project plan of development. How many wells are you going to drill? Um, where are they going to be? What's the injection pressure is going to be? How are you going to take care of that? And then you have to just demonstrate financial responsibility. I mean, you're going to be responsible for this for a long time. They need to know that you have the wherewithal if something goes wrong to take care of it. And you have to demonstrate that. Another aspect is the injection well construction. Uh, you just don't go out there and drill a well. Your corrosive fluids combining with CO2 and water. Um, you need to demonstrate that you're putting a wellbore in the ground that is going to be able to withstand the injection uh, of the CO2. You have to demonstrate record keeping and reporting. Uh, what are you going to do? How are you going to record this to us and share the information with us? Uh, well testing and monitoring is another thing. Um, you're going to test the well that you're injecting into, and you're also going to have monitoring wells that may or may not penetrate the zone to make sure that you're not losing any fluid. And then finally, you're going to have to demonstrate how you're going to plug these wells and then after that, monitor the site, continue to monitor until you close it off. So there's a quite a bit of effort that goes into putting the permit together. Not only that, but executing it and following up with it that don't exist with a class two permit at all. That's why there's probably only, you know, three of these that have been actually completed today. Yeah. You know, I think an interesting uh, add on to that was we saw the, you know, we knew that North Dakota recently received primacy and then. Uh, just in the last month, uh, there was an announcement of a, a permit that they had granted. And, you know, it might be easy to say, aha, the North Dakota state took this over and now this thing is moving fast. And, well, when you look at the permit it, it application, it pushes 600 pages. It clearly is multiple years of work. Um, you know, there was not state primacy was not a shortcut to less work. What we would hope is that the states will have adequate resources uh, in order to process things more quickly. Uh, but I don't perceive, I don't believe at this point that the bar is going to somehow be lowered uh, when states start to get primacy. No, I, I totally agree with that. And, and that permit, I was really floored when I saw it come out because we were kind of monitoring these things and I was like, what is going on? Started digging into it and they had been doing technical work back in 2016 on this area and this formation. And so they were ready. I mean, they were ready when it became a financially viable option. And this is pretty kind of a special case um, to move on. it. And so it, all the stars aligned and they got it going. But it was in no way a technical shortcut simply because the EPA wasn't involved. And I think on that note, let's go ahead and wrap up by just giving a quick update on how some states are currently trying to obtain primacy and where they're at uh, in respect to that process, that transitionary process. Uh, so if you could just give us a quick update on a few of those states and then, you know, even just at a high level intersect uh, maybe what 
other states can learn about what is working well and what's maybe causing some hiccups in that primacy process? It's a little bit of a tough question for me to go too far into just because it's, it's not necessarily a super transparent process. I think aspects of it are. We've, we've certainly seen, uh, the Louisiana, uh, application to the EPA. And so, but where exactly it exists in the process of review and maybe back and forth with the state, that's not something that I'm, I've run across yet. So I really can't comment on that. Uh, we know that Texas um, is actively seeking primacy. Um, and we think that makes a lot of sense. And we expect that from some conversations we heard, um, oh, it's been a couple of months ago, maybe three months ago, is prior to the uh, legislation passing, the uh, Texas State uh, geologist, if you will, uh, held a webinar talking about their efforts. They expected, if I recall, they were thinking it was going to be a six-month process. And it's probably some back and forth that will occur between them, maybe a little bit out of the public eye as they try to demonstrate that they are, um, you know, have everything in order that they can satisfy the railroad, I'm sorry, satisfy the EPA that they'll be able to fully and properly enforce the law. As far as what other states are Doing, I'm not aware of any others that are actively seeking primacy. There could be some that would make sense for them to do so. You know, Illinois has a number of uh, aquifers that are, in fact, that's where one of the permitted wells exists near an ethanol facility. Some of the other Midwestern states to the uh, east in particular, Indiana, Ohio, they have both a certain amount of CO2 emissions that could be uh, amenable to storage and they have uh, saline aquifers that are available to them. So I could, you know, it would make sense for them to pursue that. I have not heard that they are. I think that those states, I'm sure, are capable of figuring out, you know, what's in their best interest. And as they start to see activity increasing and they say, you know, we may not be able to lower the technical bar, but we can work with the companies in our jurisdiction to help make this process go faster uh, by putting the right resources on it and, you know, the way we collaborate with them, that would be beneficial for us to deploy this technology and all the economic benefits that come with it. Um, I think there will be some that, you know, recognize the, the logic in pursuing that and will do so. And I'm, I'm sure they recognize that it's, it's a process. Some are going to be better situated, I think, to handle it because they already have active oil and gas activity. And so much of what is involved with the underground portion of carbon storage is very similar to, identical to, in many respects, what we do in oil and gas. If you if you have a state that has a history of oil and gas development, then they're going to be further down the road in understanding a lot of the uh, technical aspects that have to be considered and what it would take to have an enforcement uh, mechanism that uh, they could oversee in a rigorous way. More likely to convince the EPA of that too. Yeah, for sure. And I think on that note, we'll go ahead and wrap up. Thanks y'all for an overview here of this new permitting process, how it's intersecting with uh, carbon capture, utilization and storage tech and methodologies and uh, again, just kind of getting into the nitty gritty of uh, some of these permitting processes and how they differ from 
existing class two ones and uh, just giving our audience some of those actionable tips, which is really the name of the game. So thanks again to the two of you. We've been chatting with Steve Hendrickson, president of Ralphie Davis and John Beard, vice president of Ralphie Davis, both with an opportune company here. Steve, John, if folks want to find out more about the work Ralphie Davis is doing, the work that Opportune is doing, or just get in touch for some more thought leadership, how can they do so? Yeah, you bet. So of course, we have our website, opportune.com, where we go into information about all of our various practice areas. That's where you would find out about what we do here at Ralphie Davis. But we've also recently put up a new page about our CCUS advisory. Uh, We, of course, get involved in technical aspects, Uh, But we have some other practice areas uh, specifically around tax and finance that uh, we also have capability that we can offer to the CCUS participants. So uh, by going to that page on our website, they can find out a lot more about what we're up to. Fantastic. Noted. All right, John, Steve, I appreciate y'all's time again today. Thanks again. And I hope we'll chat again soon. I expect we will. You bet, Daniel. Thanks, Daniel. Appreciate it. Take care. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. If you like what you heard and you want to listen to previous episodes or you want to catch up on some future content, make sure that you are subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and make sure you're heading to our website, opportune.com. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And thanks again for listening to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business.